Ari Izunwa. Welcome to the show, my friend. How are we? <laughs> well, well, thanks for having me on. Um, I've seen posts and you know, snippets of this on various different platforms. So it's kind of strange and in a nice way to actually be on on the uh, on development by David. But yeah, very nice <laughs> to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, I really wanted to do a post or a podcast, sorry, on, on social mobility. And I was waiting yeah. for the right person to come along and drop some bombs on it and give the listeners a perspective of not only what it's like to be on a social mobility journey, but what the social mobility cause or state is in the UK at the moment. I heard you deliver a wonderful uh, mic dropping social mobility uh, talk at my work a few weeks ago. And it was so powerful and so impactful. And I can't believe it was your very first uh, presentation on social mobility, mate. Yeah. Uh, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I've, I've done lots of public speaking, um, like, from when I was a child, I was in acting school as well. So like being in front of audiences is not a particular challenge to me. I actually enjoy it. And then doing that, but engaging with a topic of like extreme interest and passion, it's just quite natural um, for, for me. So yeah, glad to hear it well. Um, but to be honest, I probably enjoyed it a lot more than the audience did. I just love talking. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm probably really going to enjoy this, um, <laughs> obviously. So let's, let's have me as long as you as you need me. Um, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> uh, um, it's one of these topics where I couldn't give uh, the mutts nuts if it ran over because there's so much value and it means so much to me. Um, because mm-hmm. I often describe myself as a social mobility advocate. And I know you do too. Yeah. I mean, you even have Climbing the Rungs podcast based on such. So to yes. bring this, to bring it to life, Gary, how would you define social mobility? Sure. Um, so I think people define it in multiple different ways, to be honest. I think, I think like a, a kind of a textbook definition of social mobility is like the movement of individuals or families or households across different strata or rankings in society. That's like, I think a fairly like jargony definition for it. Uh, I think the general ethos of social mobility is that you're beginnings in life or your origins or your background doesn't determine where you go. Um, so that's a, another kind of well-understood definition. But for me, with the term being social mobility, the definition has to have an action kind of term in the definition too. Uh, so I define it as the agency that one has over the movement of their social position. So if you have more agency, so more autonomy, let's say, or more control over the movement of where you want to be in life, then that country or place you're in is socially mobile. If you can't, if your parents are laborers, whatever jobs they do, being an electrician, a plumber, and so forth, very, very, very respectable jobs, you decide you want to be a doctor. And there are very few barriers to prevent you from being a doctor other than your hard work and talent, quote unquote talent, then that is a socially mobile place, country, whatever. But if there are a lot more inherent barriers that reduce your agency to move your social position, um, whether it's up or down, because it can go down too then I think that's a socially immobile, um, socially immobile place. That's how I define it. The agency that you have over the movement of your social position. I love it, Gary. So how socially mobile is the UK? Do you have any stats or numbers to bring this to life? Sure, yeah. So I think internationally, we're not where we could be, to be quite frank. So social mobility is oftentimes measured by, by what's called intergenerational elasticity. intergenerational elasticity and effectively what this measures is a child's how closely linked is a child's outcomes to their parents backgrounds right it's measured between zero and one zero being that there's no correlation 
you know, what a child does go on to has no um, bearing, or their parents' background has no bearing what they do, uh, with one being it's completely linked. Like, what your parents do directly influences how you progress in life. Um, so that's intergenerational elasticity, the measurement of how close your outcomes are to your parents' backgrounds. And in the UK, I think our it, uh, our IGE, which is what it's also termed as, is is 0.44, which by international standards is really high. So it's kind of like the US and China and I think perhaps like Colombia and so forth are worse than us. But a lot of countries um, that are worse than us, let's say, aren't as developed as us either. So as a developing country in a democracy, um, you know, we could be, we have all the foundations to be a lot more socially mobile, but we're not. And by, again, by international standards, it is quite high, which suggests that in the UK, your outcomes are heavily linked to what your parents do, which goes against that meritocratic narrative that we have of just work hard and you can achieve whatever you do. Because actually, the recipe for success is not to work hard and be talented, it's to be born rich. <laughs> which is a very uncomfortable truth for a lot of people. That is an uncomfortable truth, Gary. Um, so let's dive into your social mobility journey, Gary. What was your upbringing like? Sure, sure. So I grew up, you know, one of five single parent family, low income, you know, all that standard, you know, good stuff. <laughs> Character building, let's say. Um, so even go before that, so my parents are both Nigerian and they moved to the UK in the 80s and they separated before I was born. Um, so I'm born in like the mid 90s, let's say. And uh, so yeah, grew up single parent, you know, one of five, dad went back to Nigeria, mum stayed in the UK. Um, and yeah, like just didn't really have like mum didn't work for a bit you know free school meals all that all that good stuff um but did meet my dad um, but met my dad for the first time when I was nine and at that point um, I realized that we weren't as disadvantaged let's say because he actually had a you know, well-paid job in the oil and gas sector worked for some of the bigger players in the oil and gas space although still based in Nigeria he wasn't based here um in the UK he you know we had financial like support what's really interesting though is that in the UK which is such a stratified um, country, having economic capital doesn't necessarily offset the absence of social and cultural capital. And then Nigerian, you know, they didn't know anybody here. They didn't, their cultural capital does not translate to the UK um, because it's just so different here, you know, highbrow culture. Um, so initially, you know, it was really challenging to navigate the labour market, all that, all that stuff. But um, fortunately, you know, did good my A-levels, went to my first British university, um, did summer internships in you know, banks, you know, and started my career at a big tech company. So initially quite challenging, but quite quickly went through a rapidly upwardly mobile journey. So prior to meeting your dad for the first time, you were quote unquote um, classified as disadvantaged, but were you classified or did you classify yourself as disadvantaged after you met your dad and received that support? It's a good question. I, I, I don't like to use the word disadvantaged in all, in all this stuff because I, I feel like it's a very negative word and I, yeah. I, I tend to use like less privileged because we will have privileges, whether we know or not. We will have them, yep. but some of us just have less of them. So I'd say, because I, I like, although I didn't, like my dad wasn't there, we weren't like rich. Like mum loved me like super unconditionally. I went on school trips, like, you know, she grafted. Um, and like, so I didn't even know, like we had a lot of these challenges, right? So I grew up we close to my siblings. It was fairly, fairly fine, to be honest. So I wouldn't have ever felt like I was suffering. You know, we always had food on the table. Was, we weren't living in complete destitution. So I wouldn't say I was disadvantaged. 
uh, I'd say I was less privileged. Um, that's just how I turn it. And then even after, like, can meet my dad. You mean I was a nine? You know, I don't really know. You know what? Probably don't even know what this even meant at that time. Um, <laughs> to be honest, so I don't know. I wouldn't have. Like, it's funny because yeah, we could afford things or more things. Like we weren't rich, but we had more like financial capabilities. I think after that, I probably would have. I don't think I. It was a, like, a completely like noticeable difference, to be honest. Not not to the point where I'd say you know our life has changed like dramatically. And and I think that stems to the fact that money isn't everything. I think I learned that quite early on, um, because like although we had our dad's financial support, like, he wasn't here. So he didn't have like that support or kind of you know, I don't know system around. So I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one. I don't know if I would have said I was disadvantaged, but because I don't know if I would have ever said I was disadvantaged. If that makes sense, I've probably gone around this. In a few different ways, but um... no, 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 Gary. Um, I completely resonate with that. With that, I love that insight into being less privileged because um, I felt very rich with love and rich and experience growing up, and I totally am parallel to that. Sure. So, you describe yourself as going through a phase of being less privileged. When was the first touch point or first realization that you would categorize yourself as less privileged? Like when did I like really? feel that I there was a difference between me and other people yes yeah um now without like outside of just watching television and shows like million dollar listing or made in Chelsea and like seeing it on tv like there's real people that live different lives but you know there's that degree of separation it probably started at university um just when you start to realize there are people that you know we all live the same 365 days but we live them quite differently. Um, you know, I didn't go to an elite university, but there were definitely, you know, private school students or, you know, private school people or people that were at my university that I was in friendship groups with. And you hear, um, you know, the ways that they were able to gain work experience in you know, big investment banks and so forth, just through connections that their pa- parents or family had. Um, you know, it's like, wow, we, we, we have lots of different access here. And I think that was a point where I realised, like, wow, okay, yeah, I am less privileged, um, from there and then I did an internship at you know a big bank in in summer of yeah 2014 I think and you know banking is very you know the numbers will tell you it's quite you know socially exclusive uh, I think they're doing better and they're trying to do better but a lot of people at least when I was doing my internship for the first time there were a lot of people that were from you know, privileged background private schools or you know or not private school but still from a privileged background I think we oftentimes, you know, look at state school educators as one all-encompassing group of people that are disadvantaged. But some of the richest people I know went to state schools, you know, but are, you know, really well off. So, but yeah, private schools, um, lots of private school people's on my um, in-summer internship. And, you know, they would have you know, summer homes in the south of France and you know, go on ski trips and, you know, even might have chalets and, you know, part of place in you know, the Alps and Switzerland, all that stuff. And that's nothing, that's nothing wrong. That's nothing wrong with that, right? Like, no, no. No, if you can do that, I mean, I wouldn't mind, you know, having a summer house in there, some South of France. I mean, I'll take one of those. Um, but it's just the difference, right? You realise, um, and even when you just speak to people who are you know, from more privileged backgrounds, and their parents were had worked in the industry and so forth. I got my summer internship with lots of luck, like lots of luck. Like I couldn't, if I was to tell that story, it was just very much like luck. Whereas others were very intentional about working in banking. They knew that's what they wanted to do from like years before. We knew about the industry. I didn't even know like the breadth of the banking industry until I was you know, at university. Um, whereas others know about it 
when they're a teenager. So they're prepared a lot better or sooner than, than I was. So I think that would have been a point where I was like, okay, wow. I don't think I'm like disadvantaged in the sense that, you know, I have a roof over my head, I have food in my belly. But I can see the difference in access and understanding of how this work, world works and how to navigate it based on the lack of social capital, culture capital that I have. Can you define for me culture capital? Sure, sure. I think so cultural capital, it's interesting because cultural capital is, it's split into a number of different ways. You know, it can be like embodied, it can be institutional, it can be objective. Um, so, but I think what it really tends to like look at is like your tastes and interests um, that you have um, based on, you know, your, your social background. And it's called capital because these tastes and interests that you have can be cashed in for rewards, like it, later on in your life. Like that's why it's a, it is a source of capital, but although it's not tangible, let's say. Um, so yeah, I'd say you know what what you do basically for fun, how you show up, how you express yourself. These can all be bunked into what's known as cultural capital. And as I mentioned, it can be split into three different forms. So there's embodied cultural capital, which is how you gesticulate, how you dress, your, your, your exactly social or physical indicia, indicators on someone's uh, class background, let's say. And then it's institutional, let's say, which is like the degree you have, whether you've studied at all. And then it's objective as well, um, which is like whether you own like particular pieces of art or instruments and so forth. So these all denote what your interests are. Um, yeah, so that's like, and and based on your cultural capital, um, those can help you, you know, form relationships with certain people, build bonds, navigate certain situations, participate in a conversation. <laughs> um, it all is, you know, can come down to cultural capital. I've heard you use the term network gap before. Does the term culture capital coincide with the network gap? Yes. Yeah. Um, to a degree, yes. So the network gap is, it basically refers to the gap between individuals depending on, um, the gap between the opportunities and the networks that individuals have depending on where they were raised, where you grew up, the neighbourhood you grew up in. Um where you went to school and where you studied. So I think that LinkedIn are really kind of like pioneers on this. And they basically found that if you went to, if you were raised in a really good neighborhood and you went to a really good school um, and or university, and you went to a great, worked at a great employer, you were 12 times more likely to have a big, broad and strong network, which you could then use to access more opportunities. Um, and it's funny because a lot of those things where you were raised or where you grew up, arguably with the school you went to and where you work, um, are not really in your control. I mean, definitely the former, right? Like where you grew up, you have no, you have no bearing on that. Um, but they have huge consequences on the, the network that you have. And we know, you know sayings like, or Appleton's like, it's not what you know, it's who you know, your network is your net worth. These are real. These are real. They're not just for jokes. They're not for banter. Uh, and oftentimes some people are building those things up without any effort on their own, like doing. It's just the situation they've been raised in. Um, so that's the network gap. And I suppose, does it have links to cultural capital? I think the network gap is more of a social capital conversation. You know, the networks you have, the connections you can you can build or have built. Uh, I think the network gap denotes to that. Um, but then cultural capital does come into it because if you have a certain type of cultural capital, you can tend to build relationships and connections easily or more easily than others. That's insightful, Gary. 
It sounds like the network capital network gap is built up of a cocktail of non-controllables. Coming from a less privileged background, what is within our control? Yeah, so it's when if you're looking to progress like this in the way that you want to progress, um, there's some things that are in control and some things that aren't. I think the main thing is your attitude and work ethic. Like I struggle to say things like hard work, so I think it's such an ambiguous term. Because we can all work hard. If we don't know how to work hard, then we will either get opportunities or not. There's some people, or all of us, or more privileged people, no disrespect to them, but they are raised in conditions that allows them to work hard in the exact ways they need to, to be more successful. And that's not necessarily, you know, due to their own, if their parents are putting them, you know, in you know, providing them with tutors that, you know, instruct them to study more, but they have paid for that tutor to give them that resource, then... They are learning how to work hard, but in the exact ways that they need to. Whereas the poorer person who doesn't have that capital to, you know, work hard in that way, can still work hard and read a textbook, but might not be able to understand how to navigate an exam or something. So I, I struggle with this concept of working hard. But I think one of the most, like the biggest things that is in our control is proactivity. And it's something that comes up in my journey a lot is, you know, owning your career, reaching out to people you know, applying for things, not self-disqualifying yourself, which isn't easy. Um, the proactivity is probably, or that, that attitude, that graph, which oftentimes a lot of people from low socioeconomic backgrounds do have. I, some of the most, you know, the strongest, biggest hustlers or grinders or whatever you know, I've ever met are people from low socioeconomic backgrounds because they have no other choice to work. Um, but knowing how to do that is a different conversation. But I'd say that, yeah, that attitude, proactivity is within your control. And, um definitely something that needs to be utilised if you're looking to you know, improve your life or go from one place to another. I couldn't agree more, Gary. Uh, a personal anecdote that I can add here, though, is although I do describe myself as proactive now in terms of networking and finding opportunities, like I, I wouldn't say I'm particularly hardworking or particularly intelligent, but what I'm able to do is understand what outcome I want from life or a certain mm -hmm. scenario. I then need to unravel where that outcome would, what what opportunity or what environment that outcome would sit in. Oh. I then proactively find an individual that can get me a seat at that table. And that's essentially how I achieve things these days. But I know when I was 16 or 17, I suffered greatly with imposter syndrome, especially when I wanted a career in accounting. I had this um, stereotypical accountant in my head and I believed if I wanted to be this accountant, then I would have to wear a facade of the traits of what I thought an accountant looked like or behaved like. Um, and I, I had this underlying belief that I, I couldn't be from a socioeconomic disadvantaged background and identify as an accountant. Interesting. Do you think, do you think a lot of people from a less privileged background struggle with imposter syndrome? Yeah, like I think we all struggle with imposter syndrome, to be honest, but there is a different level, different dose, a different load, you know, that you you carry when you come from a lower socioeconomic background, um, particularly if you've moved from a certain place which isn't, which isn't as polished to a place that is, because you're constantly thinking, like, how, unless you're extremely confident and you've been, you know, you've had a lot of that kind of... Um, you've been conditioned from your parents to believe in yourself and you've had lots of ability and you've had that indoctrined into you from an early age. Like when you move quite rapidly, you know, for some people it could be 
going to school and to university and then you're finally on this grad program and you're earning all this money and it's happening really quickly. You, don't, you haven't even had a chance to really process that journey. Um, if you are doing something like that, then you know there's the thought of how did I even get here? Um, what if they find out that I'm not from yeah. this you know initial polished background and they you know think they've made a mistake and take this job away from me? Perhaps I should just be grateful that I made it in. I don't know anyone or very few people that come from the backgrounds that I am from who are here. So look, I should just be grateful that I have this job and not make too much noise, not ask for more things like promotions or pay rises. Um, you know, there's this there's this distance from familiarity with where you are uh, or where you've come from to where you are that you're always kind of on edge. You know, you're not yeah. really sure of how this happened and if do I belong and if I can get found out, you know. Um, I think there's a lot more that organisations can do to you know, stop that. And I think we all have imposter syndrome. Some of the most successful people have it. Um, but there's things that can be more easily re- remedied, I think. Because um, in an organisation's best interest, because when you're thinking these things, you're not performing at your best. And you, as an employer, want your employees to be performing right. You want them to be doing the best and focusing on their work. But if you're, if you're expending cognitive effort into you know, trying to understand your place in the organisation, you're not going to do that. So, yeah, I definitely think we all have it. We all experience imposter syndrome, but when you come from a lower socioeconomic background and you're going through up and up really mobile journey, it's just, it's a lot more, it's a lot stronger, let's say. Did you, have you ever felt that um, yourself? Like, you know, you mentioned you did, but any examples of when you felt imposter syndrome and how you might have overcome it? Yeah, Gary, when you said um, an individual from a socioeconomic disadvantaged background because of this might not perform at their best, I think they might perform at their best on paper, but not in the sense of being their true self. For example, I remember when I first started in my apprenticeship at a big four firm, I would attend college or um, tuition to do my AAT level four, three and four qualifications. And we were sent down to Birmingham to uh, undertake these exams and undertake the tuition. And after the class finished at 5 p.m., we'd go back to our hotels and most of my colleagues would go out for dinner and drinks and use up the expense allowance and have like a great time, proper, properly just the experience. But I would go back to my room and study every single night and stay up till like midnight every single night because I was scared in case I was going to get caught out. Sure. Wow. And yeah. I'm performing my best and giving everything I, I had would remedy that. Mm. But something that, so for so long within the firm, I would do what was best on paper. I would follow all the right steps and I wouldn't make, I wouldn't disrupt and I wouldn't make much noise. I wouldn't be my true self for so long, but only until I became my true self and embraced my true self and became transparent within the firm. And it allowed me to be more innovative and have more of a social impact within the firm. Mm. And only until I was transparent. And I know we're going to talk about it on your podcast, about we being transparent. That's what ultimately unlocked me be me performing at my true best. If that makes sense. Yeah, sure. And I, like it's it's interesting to hear that because having started now, I'm still fairly early in my career and you know, I've done some really cool things that I've achieved some quick things and progressed quite quickly in my former employer, let's say. But like it's so funny to hear that because I I think progression at work is a lot more is is a lot more than just results. Like a lot more. So I would have been the person that would have gone to those drinks because I understand how many relationships are formed at socials, which can then be cashed in for, you know, projects or, um, you know, whatever 
when you are at work, you know. And so it's interesting because people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are so focused on like just doing our job well, and we think if we if we produce good results, then we'll just be picked up and someone will just pr- provide us a promotion. And that's honestly not the case. It's why we have pay gaps. It's why we have, you know, people that are staying in roles a lot longer than others because we're just focusing on doing our work because that's all we've ever done. We've only ever, we've only ever studied. We've not really been told, depending on where you come from, what a culture we're in. We've never been encouraged to speak out. Um, so we just do our work. We just study or we do our job. And we're not focusing on all the other stuff that comes outside of work, which is so important. I've seen in, you know, in companies that have worked in people get ahead when the person that works harder. Like, it, that happens so often. So often. You know, when someone is working at the desk, they're putting in long hours, or if they're studying, and someone gets ahead of them because they're not focusing on that other piece, which is the social element of work. It's super important. Because at the end of the day, people like to work with or champion people that they like or can identify with. And if you're not putting that time in to meeting people and building relationships, you could actually be hindering yourself. So it's so funny to hear that that's how you navigate your imposter syndrome. And, I'm, and obviously you're doing well right now, right? Like it's not, I, I can't imagine it's hindered you. But it's just, it's an interest how we demarcate what's important in our mind and what really can progress us or, or not. Because I have come to realize that if you just have average results or like just above average results, but have great relationships, or probably, well, there's a greater chance that you can progress sooner or whatever than if you had great results, but not such great or, you know, meager relationships with certain people. Gary, let me recommend a book to you. It's called The Formula by Albert Laszlo Barabasi. And I totally encourage the listeners to read it. I haven't finished it yet, but uh, coveted a really uh, coveted chief, not chief exec, sorry, uh, an exec at my firm recommended to me. And it's all about network science. Mm-hmm. And one of the examples they gave is basically defining the difference between success and performance. Performance being someone who's like a highly performing practitioner, does the work at a really high level. Sure. But success, he defines success being like, some, he says something like, success is about us, not you. And it's about the, your ability to make noise. Like, like you said, you could be an adequate performer, but if you don't have the network to, to view that performance, then it doesn't really matter. It's mm-hmm. the whole kind of, if a conquer fell from a tree did it re- and no one was around to hear it, did, did it really it make, happen? Did it make a sound? Did it really happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. one of the examples it gives is like the, I think it's a fighter pilot during World War II called the Red Baron. And he's known as the most deadly air pilot of all time because he was featured in books and films and marketing campaigns and propaganda. But in fact, there was like two or three other fighter pilots that downed more planes, but because he managed to make a noise and yeah, sure. people were fa- fans of him. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. That's like literally what it is. Like if you make more noise, you, like it's, it's, it's balancing all of it. Like I, I, when I was at my former employer, I, I was a very, I learned vicariously a lot. So I'm just observing, you know, spending time with high performers, people that get promoted, understand like what do these people have that make them go ahead? Um, and I came up with a formula, if you like, or a framework that you have like the three things you need to have to progress really well. Um, and they all matter equally, um, which is results, network, brand. Like, and it's like, and you can like, there's layers under those things or things that you can do to like work towards them. But those are the three things. Like, if you want to progress fast, the, if you're really well-respected, well-known, highest paid, you know, get paid well, all these things, like these, all these three things matter. You know, what you produce, like what your job description is and what your results align to that job description. You know, who you know um, in the business, what relationships you have with certain people, be it tangentially or like deep, uh, and what you're known for, you know, so what people think of you when you're not in the room, 
um, those three things are super important. If you're just focusing on one or two, um, but someone else is focusing on all three and going ahead, and they will, they will, they will, they will go ahead. But yeah, it's the squeaky wheel gets to, gets the oil, man. Like honestly, you are you have to be really intentional with 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 what you want when it comes to your career. Like you need to be saying, I believe I deserve this. This is what I've done that suggests that I you know deserve what I'm asking for. Let's have a chat about what I'm going to get this. And that's super uncomfortable for a lot of people. But you have to do it. Like, you actually have to push yourself outside your comfort zone and start asking. And if the worst thing someone can say to you is no when you ask something, or not now, like, that's not bad. So ask, but at least plant that seed in someone's head. Um, but yeah, it's just you know, the imposter syndrome thing and just interesting to hear. Because your, your story, or the way you approach that exam, let's say, is very reminiscent of how a lot of people from low socioeconomic backgrounds navigate the higher education space, or education space and work. We focus so much on results that we don't focus on the extra stuff, be it extracurricular activities or bonding, because you know the system hasn't told us to focus on those things. We're just been told to get results, get get good grades, achieve, and everything should you know spiral from there. But it's just not it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. It doesn't. You spoke about your formula for success, the three tiered cake. Um, you've interviewed tens of. Uh, less privileged people in your podcast climbing the rungs. Is yes. this formula something that you've seen um, layered throughout their stories? Is there any other kind of themes that you've picked out from them? So yeah, I'll, just just two questions there. So I'll answer it. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Like my the next podcast that's coming out, next episode is called um, "How to Get Promoted Early," and I speak with a lady who works uh, in an investment bank. Yeah, she's a black woman. It's very focused, very determined, and she got promoted to a uh, vice president one year early than her like graduate class, let's say, um, which doesn't really happen often. She was one of two to get promoted early. And she literally asked for it. Like she said, like, I want to get promoted. I think I'm doing all the work that vice presidents are doing now and I'm doing brilliantly. These are my results. You know, you know, like how, when can I become VP? And then, like, after a month of time, she got it. So that was her results and so forth. And then she was speaking with the right people, to, you know, to having a conversation with the right people that were championing her uh, and so forth. So, yeah, I'd say to, you know, to a large extent, people will be employing that focus, you know, focus on results and that way. You, like, you actually t- you cannot just focus on real results. Like, that's a, a big thing for a lot of people from low socioeconomic backgrounds. It's just like, if I just put my head down, don't make too much noise and just produce everything will be okay. And it, it can be up to a certain point. But if your aspirations are more than that point, then they're going to be very upset or, you know, very frustrated or depressed or whatever it is. Um, so I'd say yes, I think to a degree, wherever we, do, wherever we discuss it exactly in that episode, um, they do focus on all these different elements. Um, themes that I found through the podcast. So yeah, definitely some interesting things. I think two immediate things that stand out will be, um, or one, like the one thing that really stands out is the lack of role models which is, a, I think, is a, a really damaging thing for the kind of social mobility in the UK is that, so what do we have? We have a lot of people who probably were like yourself, so you're, you know, very admirable that you can feel, you know, I'd love to learn more about how you kind of came to be more comfortable about your kind of working class or socioeconomic background at work. But a lot of people are not. So like they can be MDs, be CEOs even, like, but if they come from a lower class, working class, low socioeconomic background, some people are extremely uncomfortable talking about it. Like extremely, extremely uncomfortable. It's just, although it's a part of their identity that they have no bearing over it, just as much as your race and gender is, you have no control over it, you are who you are. It's the same thing for your socioeconomic background, but you have no bearing over it. 
where people are so, I don't know if it's ashamed or they're just shy or whatever it is, so they conceal, they don't talk about it, they maneuver around conversations about their parents and their upbringing very skillfully to not show a part their identity that would expose them to harm, right? So that means that there are no role models for the younger generation. They can't look up to see people that are readily available to look up to and say, they came from a similar background to me, you know, I can now feel more confident about coming from this space as well. So they then come into work and progress and do the same concealing. The next generation, you know, they don't have any role models. So it's, it's a vicious cycle of people concealing and nothing really getting being done because people don't show that they have come from a certain background. And I think it's a real disservice, a massive disservice because organisations, not to condemn people that do it by the way, because I understand why people do it, it is uncomfortable, but we need to shift the narrative and embolden people to get more involved and be more open about it because for, in order for organisations and even you know before that, or yeah, before that, you know, elected officials to make real change, this agenda, they have to know that there's an issue and has to be enough voices behind the issue to make change. But if we're all concealing and hiding, then they won't know that there's an issue or it's as significant as it is. And every person who's come from a low socioeconomic background has moved into a more privileged place will have felt it. Like I just, you know, where you just feel a little bit of shame or you're embarrassed or you don't talk, like you just, you're basically a very, very, very resolute person if you haven't, but a lot of people do. And a lot of people conceal, but it's a disservice to yourself because, and other people, because you're not voicing that not being a role model for other people and it leads to less change and also it impacts you because there's a class pay gap you know privileged peers earn around 16 percent more than uh, or privileged workers earn around 16 percent more than less privileged colleagues in the exact same jobs so if you're not voicing it and saying this is an issue that i felt i don't feel like i belong as much because of where i've come from you know your organization will not make you know relevant or provide relevant interventions you won't get you know there's less chance that you want to get paid at what you probably could be um, so I think that's one thing that stands out to me the most is the lack of role models, which comes from inherent shame or feeling of judgment. Um, and that needs to change. Gary, that's, that's so stark. Did you have a role model growing up? No, I wouldn't say I saw many people like on, from a social economic background. No, I probably like now I wouldn't have a role model, but no, I wouldn't have had one. What was the catalyst for your uh, socioeconomic growth then? Confidence in myself. Like I've always known that I'm like, I have particular abilities that others don't at a very heightened like level, let's say like I'm more of a soft skills person, extremely affable, good relationships really well, great networker, um, creative thinker. Like these things that I have, I have them to a very, very high ability. Um, and I started to notice those skills um, helped me like, deliver really strong results at work that others weren't producing. I just thought, you know, actually, I'm great regardless of where I come from. I'm brilliant. Uh, I don't really care if, you know, I've come from a somewhat less polished background. So I just became more confident of it because I became more confident with myself. Um, and it's so funny because all that judgment and shame that I thought would have existed perhaps before if I was open about it from the beginning, it was like the inverse. Because when you start to talk to people more and say, oh, I'm doing all these great things and I came from a particular place, people tend to respect you or admire you a lot more. It's like, wow, that's really challenging. And, but you're doing all these great things. It's like, actually, you're more talent or you're, you, you have a lot more potential than someone who didn't have these barriers and is doing similar to you by virtue where you've come from. So I was even like holding myself back because I wasn't sharing that part of my identity um, and not giving people uh, an opportunity to really see my brilliance in its full self because of my concealing. And because I've been more open, like so many more opportunities have come my way. It's really funny. Gary, you, you, you are 
one of the best humans I've ever met in my life, and uh, I've recognized. <laughs> yeah, I've recognized that many people. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been at the receiving <laughs> end of all those traits, Gary, so far. Yeah. Um, and an insightful anecdote for me is that um, I believe when we talk about one of the key factors for success is leveraging your network. I believe you can only fully leverage your network if you embrace oh. those things you've been concealing. Because if I believe you only need one true connection. I always say this on my Instagram and on other podcasts, but how I would define a true connection is exposing all your vulnerabilities, exposing your genesis story, exposing your desired outcomes, exposing your traumas, and exposing what makes you tick. And if you can present that to one person and you present that um, in its rawest, most transparent way, they will think of someone else who has similar traumas or similar desired outcomes or similar experiences and they'll link you with that person. And oh. then when they link you with that person, you expose the same version of yourself and it has a compound interest effect. But if you conceal 50% of your true identity, for I example, Gary, only you can be as good at being Gary as you, as you can. Like no one else can be, no one can draw from the highlights and lowlights that you've had and no one can uh, draw from the highlights and lowlights that I've had. But only until you Absolutely. embrace both of those you can build and leverage those connections, which ultimately to, to success, to success, sorry. Um, mm. Completely agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> no, just I completely agree with you. And I think it's that piece of being comfortable with who you are. It's, it might seem quite facile or not significant, but it is extremely, extremely, extremely important. When we're talking about social mobility or socioeconomic background, like we need more people to be comfortable with where they've come from and to talk about that readily at work, it should a conversation that veers on that come up, it, we have to improve that narrative because it's holding so much progress back. There's so many issues that people don't even know exist by people that come from these backgrounds not sharing that. It's it's a really important piece, but, um, but I'm very confident that um, I will be a part of that change and will also change too. I'm playing thought pinball with the fact that in recent years, in the last 20 years, we have been more transparent about other social causes or other causes such as um, race at work, mm. gender at work, sexuality at work. Why is there a lagging culture in social mobility, do you think? So the reason, one of the reasons why I feel like social mobility isn't, or socioeconomic background is not focused on as much in comparison to other strands of the diversity, gender, race, gender, sexual orientation. It's um, three, I think three reasons. Uh, one is obviously optics, so you can't see, although a part of cultural capital which feeds into socioeconomic background is the embodiment of it, you can't see class as much as you can see gender or race. But that's straight away, right? And depending on how you gesticulate, you know, your sexual orientation too. Um, so that's one thing. You can walk into a room and see how many black people or women are in that room and decipher whether that company is diverse enough, but you can't really do that for socioeconomic background. The second, I think, is like the historical exclusion of people based on those. Um, parts of their criteria, or characteristics, sorry, part of their identity. So, you know, black people, women, you know, people who are from the LGBTQ plus community, they have experienced very intentional exclusions in work, in society, are based on who being who they are. And it's, you know, and we're coming to a point where we're almost reckoning with our past <laughs> by providing them solutions uh, or interventions to, to the problems that they have. And, the, so, and I completely subscribe to those, right? I get those. And I think that, you know, the focus on race, gender, sexual, and anything else really should only continue to grow. But the last piece, which I think is a lot more sinister and 
is a result of um, of the pseudo-meritocracy that we live in, is that people genuinely believe that in particularly in westernized democracy, they genuinely believe it doesn't matter where you come from, as long as you work hard, you can do whatever you want. If that is something that the American dream, that is something that people with every fiber in their body believe in. And because people believe that, if someone isn't doing so well, then that's their fault, right? Like we shouldn't necessarily have to provide them with as much intervention that says we would for someone who's, you know, black or a woman, because they have control over their outcomes. They can do whatever they want to be. And for a long time, I would have believed that, you know, that you can do whatever you want, but like, that is absolutely just not true. Like where you come from, like in almost in every single sense of word matters, like in every every single word, sense of word, but like, you can't just be a doctor, you know, just because you want to be. There are so many other things that would determine where you can or cannot. But I think, again, because we do have this, we do kind of espouse this meritocratic narrative that if you were talented and you work hard, then no matter where you come from, you can do whatever you want. That's what stops people from focusing on this um, as much as others. And it's just false. It's not true. Like, you know, I can say all the stats in the world that can, you know, that can determine or that would suggest that that isn't the case, right? You know, I think even in the, in, in the UK, um, you know, it takes 150 years for the poorest families to reach just national average income. Are we suggesting, or, or, or for equal to five generations, are we suggesting that all those people and those families just don't work hard, they're all lazy? You know, uh, a, 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 a working class graduate or a less privileged graduate with a first class degree from a Russell Group University is still less likely to enter an elite occupation than a Privileged graduate of the two two, you know, Oxbridge gra- graduates from less privileged backgrounds and five thousand pounds less than privileged Oxbridge graduates in the same set of jobs. So you know, it does matter where you come from and the, the kind of environments that you're raised in. Even in the US, in you know, you can look at elite education. Harvard, um, on average, admits one in twenty applicants, but they admit one in three legacies, which is children of parents who also attended Harvard. So there's a link between like, you know, what your parents do and your outcomes, which doesn't fit into this metric narrative of just work hard and you can achieve whatever you want. Uh, but I think that last speech is a lot more sensible because it's not true. That also it just means that you know, it, it prevents people from rallying around this cause as much as we would other parts of the diversity conversation. Well, Gary, that, it, it was very stark and very sinister, but I think it captures what we've spoken about for the last 30 minutes. Um, if you were to sell the advantages of, of employing disadvantaged or less privileged people to a firm, you were to package this up, what advantages would you list? Creativity, grit, hustle, determination. For a lot of people, if you've come from a low socioeconomic background and you've now moved into a certain space, for a lot of people that can be seen as a fair one opportunity to progress their lives. So they take that opportunity extremely seriously and they want to maximise it and they don't want to lose it, most importantly. So they dedicate a lot of their time and energy to doing, to doing a good job in whatever sense that, you know, where that means to them. So I think if you're looking for determined people, hardworking people, people that are putting the hours, I mean, yeah, definitely people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. I and mean, then I think creativity, I mean, you give, you know, five pounds, 10 pounds to someone who's not poor, who's not rich, sorry, you know, or has grown up poor, they, they can just find so many different ways to make that money go far creative ways that certain people who have never had to think in that way would just not be able to think. I think creativity is also just such a big piece of 
the, on the mandate of why people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds should be hired. Apart from the fact that, like, it's just fair it should, that you should be broadening out your recruitment funnels and channels to to everybody. Um, there's definitely, you know, a performance imperative, an economic imperative. There's been studies to suggest that if social mobility levels in the UK increase to similar levels in Western Europe or in Canada, GDP can increase by 4%. So if we're becoming a more fair and mobile society, we all have more money in our pockets, our economy performs better. I I completely agree with both of those. And to talk about the grit and resilience um, point, uh, I've often described my background is like an elongated version of <laughs> cold water therapy. It, it sounds, it, look for this comparison, right? It sounds daft, but like a lot of people <laughs> perform cold water therapy in order to endure significant stress in the morning in order for their later stresses to feel um, less, less um, enthralling or less significant, right? And I feel like my traumas and my less privileged background is like an elongated version of that because i've faced these <laughs> challenges growing up i am more able to lean no. into discomfort now i can operate yep. more efficiently in discomfort uh, because of this um so that's really interesting gary i also mm. wanted to ask you about your gap year and your traveling because you told me that this was a pivotal pull, a pivotal point in your social mobility journey, and it altered your perspective on life. What did this experience sure. unlock for you? Yeah, good, good question. And one thing I always like, one thing I always ask people to do, or implore people to do, or particularly from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, is to travel. And I, I know travel is oftentimes left as a luxury, and oftentimes can be expensive, but it can be done very cheaply. And I think the benefits of it for your self development and your career outweigh the costs in the short term so I implore people to travel so much so there's a bit of a backstory so when I was working doing my summer internship in banking I quickly became like super disillusioned like you know before I was like oh canary wharf suits after work drinks skyscrapers can't wait to start <laughs> and then like three weeks in I was like okay I hate the tube so packed I'm so sweaty I hate I don't like wearing suits no, I don't you know just I can so happy this is nine weeks so I can just like stop working so my left um, when I finished my internship and I went back to uni, there was like two things. I, you know, I didn't want to work in finance. I didn't want to work after university. So I said, okay, um, I want to get, but actually when I was on my summer internship, I managed to like network really well. I got a meeting scheduled with the chief of staff of Barclays at the time. So this meeting was on the, the top floor of one church or place, which is what Barclays is, like the office is. That's where like, the CEO sits, where the, um, like, the, the, the chief executive, the CFO sits. So I got to see them and their office was really cool. Like it's, it was a really cool experience. So I met her and she shared her like a career, you know, really, really accomplished woman. But the one regret she said she had um, was that she didn't travel. So, you know, me as a 19 year old at the time, wherever 20 year old, yeah, early, um, I, I, for someone that experienced that credential to say this is a regret, I'd be seen not to listen because I didn't want to work straight away anyways. So I did go into my final year, I want to travel, I want to take some time off. So that's what I did, basically. And yeah, I went all over, man. I went, you know, lived in China for half a year, went to Colombia, Panama, the US, India, um, South Korea, you know, Southeast Asia, Thailand, Sing Singapore, Hong Kong, just did Hungary, went all over the place. Um, great experience, life-finding experience. But what I why I suggest people to do it is not 
just because you're going to have a great time and you deserve a break after work studying for 21 years of your life or whatever. Um, it's more of the soft skill development. So yeah, when you travel and you do it solo, which is why I did a lot of my travel with, but also with friends, you're in unfamiliar environments where things are just not the same. Like I think before before traveling, I just I just thought everything was done the same way it was done in the UK, <laughs> which is so weird, right? I just thought everything like way like things are in the UK is like surely how things are. Everywhere. And you go to a different country, it's just drastically not. We all live the same. <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> we all live the same. We all live the same 365 days. We live them so differently depending on where we're raised, the culture we're in, whatever. So so that naturally just like piques your curiosity. When you're in a different country and you're seeing things, you know, certain phenomena or certain character, I know, activities that are, sorry, I've got a cough. Sorry. So when you're in a different country, you just realize that everyone's living life so differently. It just piques your curiosity. And I think that naturally also develops your emotional intelligence as well. So I'm just super more, not more empathetic and understanding of other people. Um, and just curious as well, like what the way they think, the way they do things, because I know that all around the world we do things differently. Also, you know, when I was traveling a lot, I was staying in hostels, uh, not fancy hotels, you know, a 12 bed dorm with very many people. And it's, you're meeting people from literally all over the world. Germans, Germans, people, Germans love to travel, Swedish, um, you know, Asia, like everyone, you're all in this one space and you're just sharing your lived experiences and it just broadens your mind and makes you a lot more open-minded. Uh, I think that was one of the biggest things I learned on traveling was that things aren't done the exact same way that they are in the UK, but they're still done well in their country. For example, you know, South Korea, they, they're a very different culture from the UK, but that is one of the world's most developed countries. You know, it has some of the world's biggest com- com- companies, LG, Samsung, you know, Hyundai, you know, all these, uh, Lotte Group, all these big companies come from South Korea, but they do things so differently to us. So surely it's it works, right? Surely it's okay. And it just opened my mind to more that. That experience of being more open-minded, it's just it translates into work as well, where you can form relationships with people more. You're not you're not argumentative or defensive if someone has a different opinion to you, but you're more you know, curious to understand why they do. And that helps you form relationships more. Um, uh, one thing that's really interesting around South Korea, which really just, like, blew my mind, is that in so obviously when you're born, when you have a baby in the UK, you know, your 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 birth starts from the day you're conceived, right? The day like you like uh, or the day you are like actually a uh, born right but in south korea they count the nine months that you are like in your mother's womb as part of your life so you would have someone who's born you know for us is aged 18 based on where they're born in the uk but they would say they're 19 years old because they count that one year or nine months in their mother's womb as one year of life and at first i was like well that's just strange that doesn't make any sense like no but i sat back and thought well actually that could make sense like i could see how that does make sense and also again just thinking um you know, this is South Korea. It's a super developed company. You know, it's country, sorry. Ma- amazing, you know, companies from here and so forth. Like, and they've been having this way of thinking for like years. They can't just be wrong or, they, or backwards, right? Like, that, it does make sense. And that open-mindedness and that just broadened way of thinking, like, it's super important when you're trying to come to work and build relationships. Again, communication as well. When you're traveling, you're meeting people that aren't necessarily you know, the best English speakers. So you have to understand how to communicate in, in, in a concise but clear way that you can still talk to people and form relationships or get things that you want or so forth. I found that was a big one. Confidence as well. When you can go to a country that you don't know anyone or don't even speak the language 
And you can not only thrive, but uh, um, survive, sorry, but also thrive. That just installs in you the fact that you can do anything. Like, did Mount, I've been to countries where, you know, so just my backpack, you're, you're initially quite nervous. But you go there, you have an amazing time, you meet so many amazing people. And you think, actually, you know what? I'm, I'm capable of doing a lot more if I can do this. Because initially, that was such a big fear of mine, right? Going to a country, not knowing anybody, not thinking, I think I'm going to be lonely. And then it's the opposite. So that experience has taught me that actually a lot of fears are just in my head and actually aren't real. Um, and that's given me so much more confidence. So there's just so many skills you develop, be it open-mindedness, emotional intelligence, communication, um, confidence, that uniquely traveling builds. And that definitely worked for me, translated directly into work by, by virtual the relationships I could build with a myriad of people from different cultures, you know, always putting my hand up first for things, you know, oftentimes put my hand up first for things and really believing that I can deliver on what I'm getting involved in because I've had that experience. That cultural agility, being able to switch between, adapt between different types of people, extremely important, particularly in this globalized world that we're living in, where, you know, colleagues are from all over the world or come from different neurodiverse backgrounds. It's extremely important that traveling uniquely um, develops that. And then the other side is that building, traveling, it 100% builds a cultural capital. When you get to work, you'll find that people talk about their travels or where they've been or where they're planning to travel. And that's just a regular conversation that comes up. And if you've now had those experiences traveling, you can actually engage in those conversations, start making recommendations. Oh, I've been to, you know, Vietnam, go to this hotel or go do this X, Y, Z. You can start to participate in conversations that if you hadn't traveled before, you can now. Um, and that can lead to building certain relations with certain people. So yeah, traveling is extremely important. Something that has really stood out to me. And I did it extremely cheaply. If it's Europe, it's jumping on a Ryanair flight, you know, definitely not paying for BA when I was doing that. Um, when it was, when I was traveling in Asia, or even in Europe, to be honest, uh, it definitely was hostels. Some hostels can be like five pounds a night, you know, or taking like sleeper buses where that's like your journey, that's your travel from one city to another, but it's also your like sleep or like your accommodation for the night because you sleep on that bus. Like being really, really economical about it, it can make a lot more affordable. And again, the, the long-term benefits of traveling do outweigh the short-term costs. Extremely important. So I'm going to advocate everyone to do. Gary that's such a fascinating insight into your experience traveling and I'm quite annoyed at you Gary because you're selling it to me in a time where I can't do it <laughs> so thanks you've really teased the <laughs> listeners. I know I, 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 <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I definitely like a lot of people it's like a lot of privileged you know again nothing against them I would advocate my kids to do as well but a lot of you know, from like higher socioeconomic backgrounds do travel where do take out peers and they actually oftentimes do it before they go to university. I personally I actually think I'd even looking back at where I would have always done it after uni because I was a lot more confident in myself, a lot more intentional. Um, but a lot of people from privileged backgrounds do it and then they naturally develop certain soft skills that employers want to see communication, confidence, you know, um, teamworking, all this stuff it can start to be built from from traveling. And you know, it's a really strategic thing. And so I actually always implore people to do it and yeah, I know. Maybe maybe you could take a sabbatical. I don't know, um, but it's a really enriching experience, and it's all it's just and it's also just a really fun one. It's there's very few things I think that you can enjoy a lot, but also are really really important for development. Social mobility journey. Yes, I'm very much dedicated to this space. I believe I have unique insights and skills and experiences that make me you know a change maker. Here I have my podcast at the moment, which is like my first outside of my role. Um, so yeah. At, in, in my day-to-day -day job, I work on or I lead programs for a campaign that is committed to social mobility. So we provide low-income students and recent graduates with funded opportunities in China, mainly work. So, you know, if you're obviously that's on pause now. Um, but uh yeah, that's what I that's what I work on. Um and then 
my podcast, Climbing the Rungs, is a social mobility podcast. So I speak with, definitely tune into it if you're interested in the topic of social mobility. But I speak please with... Do. Yeah, please do. Um, I'm a pretty good host. I'll say so myself. No, I'm joking. But the guests are great. Um, and what I do is I speak with professionals, successful professionals from low socioeconomic backgrounds that have done really well, and they share how they've done that. Um, we also discuss so, so that younger people or other people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds can learn how to do that too. Um, because you know, people, professionals from low socioeconomic backgrounds, overall, we get paid less, we take longer to progress, and you oftentimes feel like we can't bring our authentic selves to work, and I want to change that. And I think hearing stories from successful professionals will help that. We also discuss broader issues with socioeconomic background as well, so you'll learn a lot too. Um, so that's like that's what I'm doing now, and I'm committed to this space, and I'm, I'm super passionate about it. I'm always thinking of ideas and other things that I can do to you know push the agenda. Um, so you'll definitely hear my voice and name around this for for a while. So I'm sticking here. Gary, I'll make sure to link your podcast and your LinkedIn and the show notes below. Um, I'm super excited to appear on your podcast too. Yes. Um, <laughs> you're, you're super inspirational, Gary. Thanks for stopping by today and unlocking the social mobility vault that you have inside uh, inside your brain. Um, let's do this again soon. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you're doing great stuff with your podcast too. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you.